Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're enjoying this beautiful spring day. You know, I love matzos, so I'm kind of sad that the days of unleavened bread are over. I was sitting in our kitchen last Sunday, and we have a tradition in our house. After the holy day is over, the, the last day of the days of unleavened bread, after the holy day is over, we always go and we get Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> So on a Sunday morning, they were, I was in our kitchen, and I was looking, and on my left were the matzos, and on the right was the Krispy Kreme donuts. I was just standing there, and I was staring at it, and I thought of that scripture that said, I set before you blessings and cursings. Choose life that may live more abundantly. And I thought about it, and then I ate two donuts. And then, to be honest, I snuck another one for lunch, and I had another one for dinner. <laughs> it's very sad, but it was delicious. I love matzos, and I love Krispy Kreme donuts, apparently. You know, we are supposed to come out of the world, come out of sin, right? And look to the excitement of the kingdom of God. But that sin often comes right back into our lives. Sometimes your wife brings it right into the kitchen. So it's all around us. Brother, I want to ask you questions begin today. As this new Holy Day season now begins and the days of unleavened bread are behind us, are you ready to leave sin behind and walk happily in a new way of life towards the kingdom of God? I hope you are. We're going to talk about that today. Even though it's hard, we have many good scriptural examples of doing just that. Turn with me to start to Genesis. We'll go to the very beginning of the Bible, and we'll look at one of our patriarchs, and we're going to see him doing something that we should copy, okay? And that scripture is Genesis 29 and verse 1. By the way, in our house, that's the noise that we get when the last donut's eaten, and you open the box, and there's some broccoli inside, right? <laughs> I saw that on, on, the, on a Yahoo or something. Somebody was put broccoli in a Krispy Kreme donut box. Very mean. But let's look at one of our patriarchs as a good example. This is a very innocuous scripture and one that we might read right over. It says in Genesis 29, verse 1, Then Jacob went on his journey and came into the land of the people to the east. That's it. It doesn't sound like much, but there's actually a profound spiritual lesson hidden in this very innocuous scripture. Clark's commentary says this, the original of this scripture is very remarkable. It says, and Jacob lifted up his feet and he traveled unto the land of the children of the east. This is a certain cheerfulness that marked his going. It was because he was comforted with a peaceful state of mind into which he had been brought by the vision of the ladder, you know the story, had seen the ladder leading up to heaven, and the promises of God. And then he went on his journey with his feet light and a pep in his step, right? He now saw that having God as his protector, Clark's commentary goes on to say, he had nothing to fear. He had a wonderful future, and therefore he went rejoicing. Now that's the fuller meaning of that scripture, that you could just gloss right over. Here's what another 
Bible commentary says, John Gill's exposition of the Bible. Having had some review that what he desired would be granted to him, he lift up his feet, which not only shows that he walked a light, but that he went on his journey with great cheerfulness. For having such gracious promises made to him that God would be with him, God would keep him, God would supply him with all the necessaries and return him again to the land of Canaan, which made his heart glad. His heart, as the Jewish writers say, lift up his legs and he walked apace with great alacrity, which is cheerfulness. It's like saying, I went on an all-expense-paid trip to Hawaii for two weeks versus I went to the dentist for a root canal, right? Both times you went somewhere, but one probably not as lighthearted as the other. So the words in the Bible have great meaning, much more meaning than we might first think. Today I'd like to examine two words in the Bible that say much more than initially appears. Turn with me to start to Romans 12 verse 9, and we'll look at those two words in in a uh, scripture that you've read many times. So Romans 12 verse 9. Actually, if I may be so bold, God's whole purpose for human life is described in shorthand in this scripture. We're going to elaborate on it and look at his true meaning today. So Romans 12 verse 9, I quote, let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. The two words we'd like to look at today are abhor and cleave. Not two words that we say too much today, I don't think anyone's written hashtag cleave yet today on Twitter, right? Unique words. Well, let's look at what they mean. Abhor is the word apostugeo, and it means this, utterly detest. To treat with horror. It doesn't mean to simply dislike something. It doesn't even mean to hate it. It's more powerful and more passionate than that. It means to hate it with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your being. And what are we supposed to abhor if we look at that scripture? We're supposed to abhor evil. We are told to never let evil gain any kind of acceptance in our lives, regardless of what's going on in the world, regardless of how the times have changed, regardless of how other people view it and maybe their opinions have changed. We can't just dislike evil, we must abhor it. And therein lies the reason many people never free themselves of sin. When we cozy up to evil, when we try to justify it, when we get used to it, when we get used to others getting used to it, we are worn down by its constant pressure upon us, and soon we are conquered completely by evil. Look with me at 2 Peter 2 verse 9. 2 Peter 2 verse 9 talks exactly about this paradigm I'm trying to express. An apt 
I would believe, scripture for today's world. It says in 2 Peter 2, verse 9, While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. If you heard this scripture, that phrase, that saying in the first century AD, you would have known exactly what that meant because it's a military analogy, apt for the world in which it was written. In the first century AD, when a soldier was beaten on the battlefield and when he was taken captive, there were only two things that could happen to him. He would be killed or he would be taken as a slave. Either way, the soldier's life was over in that it belonged to someone else. Has sin done that? To you? In the same way, if we surrender to evil or to sin for any reason, it owns us. It has taken the place of the true God as the one we serve and obey. This is another way of saying that we have put something or someone before the true God as the object of our worship. I'll illustrate with a story that my dad has told many times. I told you last time I spoke that he just retired, so he's happily three or four months into retirement now. But he used to tell a story of when he was a ministerial trainee back in 1960s, a long time ago, and he was going with a pastor, just watching, and they went to a man's house that they'd gone to many times before, and he struggled with smoking. Today, we would call it clouds of bubblicious vaping right? This man struggled with, with smoking. They'd been to his house many times before, and every time, I, as my father tells the story, they would cry, and they would console him, and they would cajole him, and he would say he wants to change, and he would say he wants to do it, but then because of stress, or just because he's addicted, he would just go back to it. And so we're there one last time, talking with somebody who could not kick the habit of smoking. They said, I really want to change. And so the pastor said, okay, let's do this. Take that pack of cigarettes and put it up on the table. Now get down on your knees on the floor and let's pray. And the man thought to himself, oh, great, we're going to pray about overcoming this thing. He said, no, I want you to pray to the cigarettes. I want you to pray to your God. I want you to pray to the thing which has taken your free will. Pray to the cigarettes. That was Bob Steve, by the way, if you know who that was. <laughs> so the scriptures tell us to utterly detest evil and to treat the very idea of evil as a horror. Otherwise, it will take over your life. And cigarettes, let's be honest, that's a small thing. What does God hate if we're to abhor evil? Let's look. There's a list. Proverbs 6, verse 16. Proverbs 6, verse 16. Let's see what God hates. I thought God was love. No, God hates things too. These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. 
This describes a lot of what's going on today, doesn't it? And probably always has. A proud look. Go check out Facebook. A lying tongue. Go check out Twitter. Hands that shed innocent blood. Look at the news. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. A false witness that speaks lies. And he that sows discord among the brethren. The expression, six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are abominations, very interesting because it gives a sense that God hates those first six things, but he calls out that seventh one. All the splits we've had, I don't think he's been very happy about that. Unto him, it says right there in the first part of that scripture. Look at it again. Proverbs 6, verse 16. Six, six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven, are abomination unto him. That is the Greek, uh, that is the word nap, napsho, N-A-P-S-H-O. It means to his soul. It's from the word nephesh, like you might think. Gill's exposition of the Bible says they are an abomination unto him, means that his soul abhors these things in his very heart. Here's something that God abhors down to the depths of his righteous being. Surely that should not be some things that we engage in then, I would think. I'm going to make uh, a point. Do we have the same attitude as God does, as we just read, towards evil. Can we honestly say that we utterly detest and treat with horror lying, violence, bloodshed, and sowing discord in the body, or by extension, in our families, in our workplace, in our communities? Joseph, as you know from the story, was horrified at the attempted seduction by Potter's first wife. And he said to her, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? But who thinks like that today? Do we? If so, would we pay money to watch others entertain us with violence and adultery? Or would we watch it even if it were free? I got somebody's Netflix password. Watch it all day long. Do we yawn as we hear profane, vulgar language and music, entertainment, or general discourse? If so, then much of Netflix or Amazon Prime is probably a no-go, isn't it? How far are we from thinking like Joseph thought? More importantly, how far are we from abhorring down to the depths of our hearts? the same thing that God hates. We're going to fail more often than we succeed in conquering evil if we merely dislike those things that God hates. Right? How do we go about expressing our hatred of evil then? DMX just died yesterday. He's a rapper from the 80s when I was growing up. And I was like taking a shower yesterday. I thought, I'll listen to some DMX while I take my shower. Y'all going to make me lose my mind up in here. And I was in the shower and I thought to myself, 
what is he saying? I mean, it got really raunchy really quick. And I had to lean out of the shower and say, Siri, turn the music off. Right? So I'm a bad example from yesterday. Everything I speak about is for myself, so I have endless material, as you can guess. Right? But do we go around, you know, trying to expunge and exclude ourselves from everything? If we see something bad, do we yell at everybody else? If we go outside of false churches and, you know, picket? Do we, uh, you know, smash people's TVs? Right? Do we try to talk people into leaving movies? No, we don't. That's where the second part of that scripture comes in. We will be successful in abhorring evil to the degree that we are successful in cleaving to that which is good. That is what we should do. Because spiritual weaklings will always lose the battlefield of fighting evil. So be strong. Cleave in Romans 12 verse 9, our focus scripture for today, is from the Greek word kolaho. And it means to glue or to join oneself to. Think of it as super glue. One little dot, touch your finger to your thumb, and you're walking around telling everybody it's okay for the next 30 days. Right? Because it's not going to come loose. That's what cleave means to. To glue. To attach oneself to. The word is used a few other times in the New Testament. In Matthew 19.5, if you're taking notes, you can look at it later. Mark 10, verse 7 where it says a man shall cleave unto his wife. And we certainly know what that means. That means that two people should love each other. And when we get married, that is what we do. It says in Acts 11, verse 23, who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart, they would cleave unto the Lord. It's the same word cleave that's used in cleave unto your wife. God created all of these paradigms. They're all interrelated. We can see from the text, the context, the text, and the tenor, the tone, whatever words you want to use, we are to cleave to all that is good just as we would to the loves of our lives. So if it really gets down to whether we truly do love the Lord our God with all our hearts and all our minds and all our beings, or as I just said, to use the analogy, to love God and his way of life as much as we love our mates, and really, as much as we love ourselves. It isn't enough to accept the truth as being the truth, or to assent to its value and acknowledge its goodness in some abstract academic notion. I know that's, I, that's, I got that, I got that abstraction, that notion. That's a thing, I get it and then don't do anything, right? We must love all that is good from God with all our hearts, minds, and beings, just like you would love your spouse. That's what this means. We are so immersed in wanting to live this way of life and no other that we don't give our adversary any quarter to have an opposing view or any place in our lives. You don't stop doing things, you start doing others. Love, good, cleave to what's good. Then we would say things like this, work on God's Sabbath? I'd rather be fired and destitute. Take God's name in vain? I'd rather receive a beating. 
Watch Quentin Tarantino movies? I'd rather die. Now, before you think that's too high a standard and farcical and ridiculous, <laughs> let's look at Hebrews 11. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. We know this character from the Bible is very well regarded by God, was used extensively as one of the, you know, most well-known individuals in Scripture. What does Hebrews 11, verse 24 and 26 say? Lest we think that some of the things I said were too high a standard and kind of ridiculous. By faith, Moses, when he had come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Most powerful kingdom in all the world, all the riches, all the power, all the esteem. For he had respect unto the recompense of his reward. Here is someone we know that abhorred evil and cleaved to good. And it wasn't just God's leaders and prophets and the most noteworthy people in the Bible that did this. This is not impossible unless you're one of the most famous people in the history of the world, memorialized in the Bible. That's not true. Look down a few more scriptures. Hebrews 11, verse 33. And others, these are your forebears here in the church. Others had trial of cruel mockings scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword. This is what's happened through God's people through the centuries. And they're not naming any names. God knows who they are. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, yet... God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. There's a parenthetical phrase right in the middle that I skipped. I skipped it on purpose because it's super important. Go back and look right in the middle. Of whom the world was not worthy. Robertson's Word Pictures is a Bible commentary says, this is a graphic picture and a short parenthetical clause. It's made to grab your attention. It's made to stir the blood of the readers. It's made to give you hope. The world was not worthy of these people. They are of high esteem. They were killed, stoned, deserted, sawn in half, had nothing, tormented, and they will receive their reward. Why will we receive the reward? Because Hebrews 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. And Malachi 3, verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob, you sons of Jacob, are not consumed. In other words, what God did for Moses, he will do for you. What he did for all these people in Hebrews 11, he will do for you. We won't succeed in our Christian calling if this calling, if this way of life is just 
What I grew up with, and I think it's probably okay, it's probably true, everybody I know does it, so I'll do it, or that's something I'm going to practice on Saturdays for a few hours, but not the rest of the week, or I think that's a good idea, but you don't put it into any practice ever. This way of life is likened by Jesus to a pearl of great price and a treasure hidden in a field. The way to eternal life, once God has called someone, is to do what I said, abhor evil and cleave to good. This is the narrow and the difficult way. But with God's help, we can do it. So here we are at the end of the Days of Unleavened Bread. It ended just last week. The Krispy Kreme donuts are back, right? But God wants us to use these days, these times, these weeks ahead to search out and identify sin in our lives. That's why we did that for a whole week. Not others' lives, <laughs> our lives. And then formulate a plan on how to put it out of our lives. Brethren, have you identified your personal sins? Do you know what you need to work on in the year ahead? God expects us to actually work on these things that are part of our character that need drastic change, the things that we thought about and identified during the days of unleavened bread. Now they're over, we need to do something about them. We simply cannot go on as before. So what is number one on your list? It's probably been there for a while, like all the rest of us. What is it? What is your number one? What specifically have you decided to do about it? What is your plan? It's not good enough that the Council of Elders and our pastors are all nice people. It's you. You have to do it for yourself. I have to do it for myself. We simply cannot remain in sin that so easily besets us year after year. Otherwise, just get down and pray to those cigarettes. There is always a way out of sin. The direction is pointed out to us by the meaning of the next holy day, which we'll celebrate soon enough. Let me conclude with the final scripture. There is hope. There is a good reason to do it. God wants us to do it. Turn with me to Luke 15, verse 10 to conclude. Luke 15, verse 10. What happens if you do these things? It says, likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. Jacob traveled millennia ago with a pep in his step. Just knowing that God would take care of him on his travels in his physical life. When we actually repent and put forth the great effort to change, not only the angels, but God himself in heaven rejoice with the pep in their step and his step because he knows that you are leading yourself into the eternal kingdom of God. Brethren, abhor evil and cleave to good.